Hi there, I am Sarah Jane Case, and I am the host of your new favorite show, Enneagram and Coffee. This podcast is dedicated to discussing the beautiful and hard parts of being human. We use the tool, the Enneagram, a personality map that has taken over the world for increased self-compassion, personal growth, and healthier relationships. If this sounds up your alley, listen to Enneagram and Coffee on the iHeart app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts online. Hello, everyone. Dr. Ashreen Areem is a licensed clinical psychologist and perinatal mental health specialist. Her passion for this population arose after becoming a mother herself. She recognized the limited support and education in the community regarding the care for women. This resulted in her pursuing additional education as well as creating resources for those impacted by perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. In today's episode, we talk about postpartum rage, what it is, how common it is, what causes it, and what can be done about it. Dr. Reem has a few digital courses that I will list out in our show notes, but she also has a workshop specifically for postpartum rage. That's extremely helpful and transformative if you want to check that out. Let's dive in. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode. This podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Good morning, Dr. Reem. We're really excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. So we are going to talk about a topic that I think is not talked about nearly enough. And I have experienced this intermittently in between, you know, all four of my kids. And really specifically, it was after my second that I experienced it to another level. And it was really all consuming and very difficult to deal with. And I had no idea that it was even a thing until, you know, when I had mentioned this on my stories, everybody was like, oh my gosh, this is happening to me too. And and so do you mind just defining for us what is postpartum rage and how common is it? Absolutely. So you're not alone when you say that you've experienced this and you didn't know it was a thing because nearly every single woman that I've met with in my practice says the same exact thing. And um, it isn't until I'm doing my assessment and I'm asking them specific questions about their feelings of anger or rage that they will cautiously start to disclose what their experience has been like. The term, the terminology postpartum rage or postpartum anger is just now starting to get some recognition and people are starting to talk about it a bit more. And this is an experience that can be a symptom of postpartum depression or anxiety or perinatal depression or anxiety. So what we've thought in the past is that women that experience postpartum depression, they're weepy, they're sad, they cry, you know, they isolate, they don't want to do the things that they need to do to live their lives. But what we've also found is that there is this profile, there are that there's this subset of women and parents that are experiencing more irritability and anger and rage. And what that looks like is this the smallest things set you off. So it's not the actual experience, you know, your partner leaving out a bottle is not something that would trigger anger normally in you. So this comes as a surprise. It's not characteristic of you. You perhaps didn't experience this at all to this degree prior to becoming pregnant. 
It can show up during pregnancy and any time in that postpartum period. But what most commonly I hear in my practice is if this is setting off this like hostility in me, it's almost something I cannot contain these feelings of anger and rage. And perhaps I yell or I throw things or I'm just, I feel like I cannot contain it and it's explosive. And that's just Mm -hmm. basically, these are the stories I hear in my practice about what this looks like and what this feels like. It obviously can be on a spectrum from irritability and annoyances and agitation to more of that rage, anger, fury, where it's big and it can become violent and volatile. So it can be a symptom of, like I said, perinatal anxiety, depression, or it can stand alone and it can show up and surprise anybody who's experiencing it. And as far as like the, how common it is, this is really hard to understand and to really get a good picture of it because not many people are talking about it and people don't want to share. And it isn't until someone does share that, you know, we give permission to all of those other parents to say, oh my gosh, me too. I, Mm -hmm. I live that too, but I've never told anybody because I just never felt safe. Yeah. Just say that. Yeah. And I feel like it's one of those things where, you know, the mom just feels this shame that goes along with it. Like they feel very alone in those feelings. They don't realize that other people are experiencing the same things. And to even mention it to anybody, just, you know, they just feel like overwhelmed with shame. Like, why is this happening to me? Like, why am I doing this? So it's just so important to talk about. So I know you mentioned it can, it can show up in pregnancy and it can show up now, does it, can it show up anytime postpartum? Like when does it typically manifest? Like when is it most commonly manifested? Yes. So when we talk about perinatal and the perinatal time period, as it relates to mental health conditions, we typically say anytime during pregnancy and as far as like the onset and that first year postpartum, we do get some people that will have like, you know, right away postpartum, they're experiencing these feelings. Some people will start to exhibit these symptoms four to six months postpartum. But typically that first year is when the onset onset of um, anger or rage will come up during pregnancy for some people, but within that pregnancy first year postpartum. And it can linger. That's the thing, the kicker. People will ask me all the time, well, you know, my child is two, my child is three. Why am I still having Mm. these symptoms? Well, recent research has been looking into this and following up with particularly with women. And what they're finding is that if the level of depression or irritability that they were experiencing was moderate to severe, they will still have lingering symptoms. You know, even at three years postpartum, some women are still exhibiting these symptoms. So onset pregnancy in that first year postpartum, but the symptoms can definitely linger for a few years. What's causing this? This is to be determined. Um, yeah, but when we like when we really try to understand like is this is this a product of anything that's changing in our body physiologically? We don't know. What we do know is that there are a lot of environmental things that are changing, and there are some things that do put us at risk. Can I mm-hmm. be completely you know sure this is what's causing it? No, I cannot. But what I can say is that there are specific people that have risk factors. So for example, if you have a tendency to be, you know, perfectionistic, or if you've had a history of anxiety, depression, or any other mental health condition prior to becoming pregnant, you're at risk. If you have a family history of mental health issues, if you have, you know, inadequate support or some really difficult things going on in your life, whether it's financial, relational, 
environmental, you know, regarding your employment. There are so many things that we can look at that are risk factors for any of the perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. But what we do know is that there are these exacerbating factors, these things that make it much worse. And that is these, I call them like your unmet needs or these buckets uh, that we have that are necessary for a functioning that are not being filled. And those are being just the desire or the need for, you know, adequate nutrition, rest, support, sleep. Sleep is a huge risk factor for anger and irritability. I was actually going through some research several months ago, and it was talking about how sleep deprivation is tied to the expression of this anger and rage that uh, a lot of women and mothers have been talking about. So no wonder why we feel and not our best when we aren't getting adequate sleep because it's a doozy, right? Yeah. I had a lot of people mentioning that when I had asked for questions for you, you know, they were like, well, how do we tell the difference between, you know, I didn't get enough sleep last night and I'm like off the charts today (laughs) with my anxiety and my postpartum rage. Like, how do I tell the difference between the two? That's a great question. If you're chronically sleep deprived, like, could it just be that you're chronically sleep deprived and, you know, not actually experiencing something like postpartum rage, you know? I think it's really important to track like what's going on. And this is hard because when you're sleep deprived, the last thing you want to do is track anything. But what's happening on those days after I did get some good sleep or what's happening on those days when I did perhaps take a nap or get what I feel is adequate rest? Do I, am I still sensing that agitation in my body or do I feel like it is not, it's not present. It's not there. That's one thing. And the other thing is it very much can be a product of sleep deprivation. And sometimes it doesn't really, I mean, I hate to say it doesn't really matter like what's causing this. If I'm experiencing it, I don't like it and I want to get, I want it to go away. Right. That's like the, sometimes when we talk about, you know, depression and is it, if it's postpartum versus like major depressive disorder, and people want to know, they really want to know. And I get that. I get the the desire to really know what's going on with ourselves. But for the most part, when we look at how am I going to make this better, it usually looks the same unless it is a product of like a medical condition or something that we need to resolve that way. But for sleep deprivation, obviously, yes, the treatment approach is we want to figure out a strategy or a way to get adequate sleep. Yeah. So is there a way or like an example you can give us to kind of show us the difference between a woman that's experiencing postpartum rage and then a woman who is experiencing just like the typical ups and downs that happen with, you know, the adjustment of your hormones and things postpartum, you know, because you can get edgy and you can get angry and sad and anxious and all of those things with your post with your hormones, you know, fluctuating. What is like some of the big differences between like, okay, I I know that this woman is definitely experiencing, you know, postpartum rage or postpartum anxiety and postpartum rage, as opposed to, I think these are just like the regular movements through the hormone fluctuations. I think a really important piece is the severity and the duration. So, you know, how long has, is this lasting? Is this been going on for more than a few weeks? Is this now, you know, spilling into months, maybe even that year beyond. So how long is it lasting, but also the severity? And, you know, am I just getting a little irritable and I'm noticing I'm snappy and it's something that I can rebound from fairly quickly? Or 
Is this something that I actually scared myself and potentially my partner or my child because it was like I could not contain it. So it's it's that spectrum of, you know, if I'm annoyed and I'm like having this like irritability from time to time, that's one thing, right? And I can manage that. But when I'm finding myself in a fit of rage, and I actually have a personal example of this that is the reason why I started to really dive deeper into postpartum rage and anger. And maybe if I share this, this will be like a good way to understand like what is to be expected or not. I remember in, it was like the first month postpartum, I was, you know, doing all the things, all the things that they tell you to do to get your baby to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) I had a colicky baby and um, that can be like a really big risk factor for these feelings because, you know, it's very challenging. So I was doing all of the things, swaddled my baby, I'm, you know, shushing and we're, it's a blackout curtains and we're swaying and we're doing, I'm, I'm not kidding. It felt like a checklist and he wouldn't sleep and he was crying and he was overtired. And I just felt this rush in me, this emotional experience that I didn't have the words for because I'd never felt it before. And I set him down in his bassinet and I remember walking out of the room and I screamed, I was screaming and crying at the same time. I was shaking because I was just like, what is happening? I was so frustrated. But then I, after like this expression of anger and rage, I started crying, but then I felt this intense shame because I thought, oh my gosh, what a monster. Like what kind of mom gets this upset with her baby, you know, for not sleeping or, you know, doing the quote unquote, like what they're supposed to do. And I just remember this big physical feeling, like this big physical rush of the anger that I was experiencing. And then this like showering of shame. And that's usually when we know that something is wrong. And I always tell the moms that I work with, if you don't feel good about it, and if it doesn't feel good for you to experience it, and if it's impacting you in any way, or you're feeling shame, or it is impacting your relationships or the way that you're functioning in your family, then it's a problem. And no one Mm -hmm. has to tell you it's a problem. If you feel like it's something that you just, it's, does not work. It's not working for you. Then, then that's a problem and you can address it and you can get the support and the help that you need. There's no such thing as, you know, that's not serious enough. It doesn't have to be like that story I shared. It doesn't have to be an extreme. It could just be uncomfortable for you. So when do you think somebody should seek help? At what point would you say, okay, you know, this person should go talk to somebody or they should, you know, try to figure out ways that they could cope with this? My answer to almost every single situation when it comes to when should I seek help is at the moment, if you're questioning it, it's time to get help. Mm -hmm. If you're thinking to yourself, do I need support with this? It's probably time. The last thing you want to do is wait until you're in a moment of crisis to be scrambling around to finding the support. And the best case scenario is that you find a support person and it's kind of mild. The issue is mild and you can work through it so that if anything ever gets worse, you know, and you are connected to the supports that you need. But yeah, you don't have to wait for this big moment to get support. And I would really, I would really encourage all the listeners that if you feel like, man, is something off with me? You know, I just don't feel like myself. And that is a quote I I said out loud to my husband in those early um, months postpartum. And it's something I hear in my office all the time. Mm. I don't feel like myself. And if you're wondering that, if you're thinking that, 
get connected with the support. And how, what do you recommend as far as finding support, like within your area? Like if I'm, you know, a mom who thinks they need help, what would be my first step to finding somebody that could help me with that? Yes, this is a great question. The most robust directory of services is through Postpartum Support International. And their website is postpartum.net. And they have a directory of trained professionals. They are all trained in perinatal mental health. You'll find therapists, you'll find prescribers, you'll find support groups that are online and in person. Some of them are free. You'll find resources for dads and partners and special groups. For example, like if there's like a military family that's looking for additional support, they have that or pregnancy or pregnancy loss. They have a ton of resources and you, you can um, find these resources according to your specific location and it'll provide that for you. So it is a global that's perfect. resource. That's great. So can dads experience this as well as us? Yes, they can. And I think that is the thing that we like, we attribute so much to the postpartum experience to like a hormonal imbalance. And although our hormones are shifting and changing, it's dads, partners, you know, even caregivers that are stepping up in a big Mm -hmm. way can experience perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. And it's due to this big shift in our identity, the expectations, you know, our whole life has transitioned overnight. And we, um, we didn't anticipate so many of the changes. So uh, when it comes to specifically postpartum depression, what we find is that one in, ta- one in 10 dads will experience postpartum depression. That's what the research says. So about 10% of dads. And they are at greater risk if a mom is experiencing a maternal depression herself. So dads will, can experience it and they're at greater risk if mom is experiencing this. And often what we see is, as far as when men are experiencing a depressive episode postpartum, is that they are more agitated and irritable than they are weepy and sad. And they may be more disconnected or resorting to their hobbies or maybe an addictive behavior. They might get more aggressive. So if, if your partner it appears to be really checked out, if they are not like themselves, just know that they can also be experiencing this and they can also be going through their own emotional experience that's different from what they've ever had before. Yeah. So... Do you have any tips that you could give someone listening that might be experiencing this where, you know, they might not be quite comfortable seeing anybody yet and they're, they might just be experiencing a little bit of some anger here and there. Is there anything you can tell us as far as how they could cope with that at home? Like, are there any coping strategies that you could give us? Yes, absolutely. We first, we talk about like, okay, are my basic needs met? And I think to do a daily inventory of my needs. And if you go there and you feel like, okay, my needs are being met pretty much regularly and I'm still feeling this way, I need to seek support. So here are some things that you can look into. If you're looking at like what my daily needs are is nutrition. You know, am I eating food that is nourishing, that makes me feel good? Or, you know, am I going long periods of time and not eating? And then I'm feeling more irritable, you know? So you want to be eating frequently throughout the day, make sure that you're planning for yourself, we are all constantly thinking about our children, right? And feeding them and nourishing them. And we forget about ourselves. So that's very yeah. important. Um, moving your body will lessen stress. And so this is one of the, I was just going through, again, I like the nerd in me, I guess it is, you know, looking at like the latest research on no, this. That's great. I, I always want to know. I always want to <laughs> know, you know, what is, what are they saying out there? What's new? 
but moving our body, you know, we, you hear this all the time, exercise is a stress reliever exercise. And it's not something that people just say casually, it's really a research thing. So we have to look into how can I move my body in a way that feels good and lessen stress. So for some people, this is like boot camp style workout for some it's walking or yoga and figuring out how do I move my body in a way that feels good to me. I used to, the, one of the greatest things I did was walk my son in a stroller because I would, he actually was quiet during that time because he was, like I said, he was a colicky baby, but I would put him in the stroller and he was so calm. It was great. So I would go for walks and I would get like a multitude of self-care because I would move my body. I was getting exposure to the outdoors and sunlight and I would get to sometimes listen to a podcast that made me feel human and made me feel like I was having this connection with other people. And I would do that and I would walk around and it would be like this, oh, by the time I'd get back, oh, took a load off. That felt so good. So moving our bodies. And then again, like I talked about earlier, sleep and rest. And I know this is hard and I know this is challenging personally. I know this is challenging, but figuring out a plan for, you know, who can step in and how can I take a break to rest or take some, some time away. And we also know that taking time for yourself, whether that's 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, you know, your, you know, your environment, your life, your experience and what's possible and what's not. But we are processing sensory information all day long as parents. Mm -hmm. So we need this space where we can take it in, process it and not be overloaded. Yeah. Taking time for ourselves is crucial. And last is like, how much support do I have? Do I feel like I'm you know, managing the, the parental load by myself? Do I feel like I'm the default parent? Do I feel like there's limited support in my environment? Is there anybody I can talk to? So we want to really look at those buckets of, you know, nutrition, exercise, sleep, space for myself, support, and paying attention to how is this going for me? Yeah. What am I doing? And I, I don't mean that you're going to get this all right for all of them every day of the week. It's just not possible. But are there a few of those that fall higher on that list, you know, they fall higher on the priority list that you're like, okay, I know that when I eat well and I move my body, I'm a better mom, you know, I'm a better dad. So paying attention to that and um, trying to move the needle in the right direction there. Yeah. And I'm going to kind of go back to what you're saying about exercise, because I know so many of the moms like in my community group and over on Instagram are always saying, well, where do you find the time? Or like, you know, I I just can't seem to schedule this in. And so I just want to address that really quickly too. And maybe you can just, I know you said you, you do your, you were doing your daily walks with your baby in the stroller and all of that. Maybe you might have some more tips, but I find that if you're one of those people that feels overwhelmed with trying to like, quote unquote, fit it in, it can be more stressful because you're like, well, I need to fit it in. I need to fit it in. But if you just look at your schedule, like the week ahead of time, so like on a Sunday and you're like, okay, how am I going to incorporate moving my body this week? And just figuring out which days that you could literally schedule it in, like talking with your partner and saying, Hey, you know, on Monday from two to three, I'd like to do a walk or I'd like to do whatever it is, a class, whatever you feel like fits you well and will serve you well and getting it scheduled in there. So it's on the calendar. This is happening. You're sharing that with your partner. Your partner's on board. For me, it was always getting up early and getting up early wasn't 
the case with, you know, after my third was born, after my third was born, she was an early riser. And so that wasn't a possibility with my baby. Now, typically she'll sleep more till seven o'clock. So I'm able to get up early and she's a baby that usually only gets up once a night. So it real very depending on, you know, how your baby is or how all your children are. And after each baby, it might be different. You might be early to rise and work out then, or you might find that working out later in the day when your partner's home or something might work better for you. But just like getting it scheduled in there and trying not to stress about it and saying, okay, this is my time. I'm going to get it on the calendar and making it work for your family, I think is just so important. And it's it's totally doable. I mean, with four kids, I can tell you it's totally doable. We have a lot of things going on. We both prioritize moving our bodies and exercise because truly we are much better parents when we are taking care of us, right? And not just ignoring our needs. And the other thing I've been doing very recently, and I'm very bad at it still, but (laughs) trying to get up and go downstairs. And if the only thing you do all day is go into the cabinet and get a glass and fill it completely up to the top with water and just stand there over the sink looking outside for the next two minutes and just downing a glass of water to start off your day, you are on a good start. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like if that's all you do all day, you can be like, oh, but I chugged that 16 ounce glass of water this morning. Like that, you know, and I have found that starting off my day like that, I don't know what it is. It just makes it so that my day seems like I'm accomplishing more. It's just such a weird thing. I think it's just your mindset. And it's such an easy thing to do. And it takes like, you know, just a minute or two. So, um, and if you have more time, like five, 10 minutes, you know, squeeze a little lemon in there, take a walk around your yard, just taking in, you know, whether you live in the woods or the city and just looking at things and getting that like outdoor dose too at the same time before everybody wakes up is going to do wonders. So I just wanted to kind of add that and just kind of like something I've learned along the way. That's just really helped. Absolutely. And when it comes, like the thing is every season in parenthood changes. So at the very beginning, you know, what you are able to do then is different than what you can be able to do down the road. So it's just like changing our expectations too. And I think if you come with in with a mindset of like, I cannot ever work out with my kids are around, then you're not going to be able to work out right. with your kids around, you know? So right. I remember having this, like, I come from like a background of I can work out whenever I want to. And I love to exercise. And now it's a big shift. It's a big change. And part of me didn't really like that. I didn't like that. I was being interrupted, you know, 15 times during this 20 minute class that I was trying to do. Right. But I had to adjust my expectation and say like, this is a short season. I'm not going to be doing this this way forever. I just have to like know that it's going to change. And it has, I mean, I went from, and a lot of my clients do the same thing. I was doing a lot of workouts that were in my living room. Yeah. We've turned our, our downstairs into a gym because, you know, going, taking an hour and a half, two hours out of my day to go to the gym and like drive there and drive. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. I mean, if my kids get up early, they know, they know where I am. I'm in the basement. I'm working out and they come down there. They can read books. They can play with whatever, but they're, you know, for the older ones, they don't interrupt me. They're just like, I know I'm up early mom, but I'm going to stay over here, you know? Mm -hmm. And like, you're right. I mean, it just really depends on the stages of what your kids are in. And I mean, you just do what works for you. If you're somebody that like loves doing yoga and you can do it right on your, you know, right at home on your television or whatever it is, and you have your kids around you and they can do it too, you know, like that can be part of your workout. Like you don't have to be completely alone to be doing your workout either. Your kids could be around there 
it's just, of course, you're not getting like that one-on-one you time because you're also engaging and sometimes having to, you know, like in my case, break up fights, but mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> you do what you can do and no matter what you're moving your body and it feels good. Yes. I yeah. did use to set up little like semi quiet activities. Like I'd pull out magnet tiles. Yeah. All those things next are phenomenal. Uh huh. And then I would, you know, work out, um, the mat next to me and I would like make it a game. Like how long is this going to last today before yeah. like all hell breaks loose? But <laughs> <laughs> some days but are better just, than others. Yeah. You just kind of go with it and you have to be, it's like a, you, we become very adaptable in parenthood because everything is, you know, ever evolving and changing. So oh, you're yeah. absolutely right. Yeah. We just go with it. <laughs> yep. Totally. All right. So I think I'm going to jump into the questions unless you have anything. Do you have anything you want to add before we move on? No? No. All right. So, okay. This is a great one. So how do you explain this to your partner effectively? Like without sounding like you have an excuse for your actions or your words or you know, how, how do you bring it up? You know, if, if, if they haven't actually seen it, so say your partner, you've had a couple of these episodes and they're mostly either when you're alone or maybe even when your kids, you put your kids down, like you had said, you put your, your baby down and then you had it afterwards and your partner hasn't exactly seen this happen, but it is happening and you want to talk to your partner about it. Like how, what's the best way to go about it? So this is a great question. There is really no right or wrong way to describe it. And I think it's just about being honest about your experience. And before you even do that, you might want to make sure that you're in a place where it is a safe place to discuss. Like if Mm -hmm. you find that your partner is dismissive or they minimize your experience or they invalidate you, you're not going to really want to share because it's going to feel like this is going to be very challenging and they're not going to hear me out. So you want to talk about, hey, you know, if you, I don't know if you've noticed this, but this is something that's been coming up for me and describing what your experience is. I've been feeling these intense feelings and I'm noticing it's coming out this way. And I don't know, have you noticed it too? You know, asking those questions to relate and say, I've been reading a lot more about this and this is what I've come across. And would you be open for me to share some of that information with you and sending it to them? You don't have to be the one that's like imparting all this knowledge on them. You can share them. I have a blog post all about rage. Or if you want to go on um, postpartum support internationals website, they've got information. You know, there are plenty of resources out there. Karen Kleiman, she is a, she is one of the providers in that. She's like a pioneer in perinatal mental health. And it's Kleiman, K-L-E-I-M-A-N is her last name. She has written dozens of books on all like a very various topics, but some of them are so good at explaining these experiences to your partner. So if your your partner wants to read a book or a blog, or if they want to go and access the information on Postpartum Support International's website, they can do that and you can pass it along. But you can share what feels comfortable to you. Share what feels you know authentic. Share what you feel like is going to be heard. And if you guys continue to struggle with this, maybe it's time to see a provider together so that you can you know work through it. Yeah. I love that advice. And I, I think no matter what, if you're feeling that way, it's it's best to at least tell somebody, right? I mean, whether yeah. it's your partner or a best friend or, you know, just seeking out help by yourself, just getting somebody else on board with you just to talk it through is always going to help. So 
Let's see here. The next person says, uh, last time I remember feeling really angry and overwhelmed. So with her previous pregnancies, is there anything that she can do to prevent this from happening again? So I guess what she's saying is she felt these feelings with her previous baby or babies. And is there anything that she can do to prepare prevent this from happening again? I mean, I'm guessing the answer is most likely not, but what can she do? Anything? This is a great question. And it's a question I get quite often because people want to know if they're going to experience this again. And the answer is, is that, do I know for a fact? No, but I do know that you're at increased risk. So having a history of a previous perinatal mood or anxiety disorder puts you at risk for having it again during subsequent pregnancies. And what you can do to prepare is get connected with all of the resources. So if I know that maybe the best time to even get connected is I'm trying to conceive. And I I get that not everyone is that proactive. So if you're already pregnant, it's not too late. If you're newly postpartum, it's not too late. You can get connected with these resources. But if you've already felt this way, my advice to you is to get connected with a therapist. And you could, like, again, like I said, postpartum.net is the website you can find a provider on the, on the directory, get connected with a therapist, talk about, you know, what happened in the past, what some of your concerns are, and they'll see if potentially medication was necessary or is necessary. We don't know. And there are medications that you can take that have low, very low risk during pregnancy and um, while nursing. So you want to see a specialist. Again, postpartum.net has prescribers that are very familiar and are experts in this field. So finding, do I need a therapist? Do I need a prescriber? Do I want to get connected with a support group? Getting all of that stuff situated while you're trying to conceive or pregnant is incredible. And then figuring out what can I do to minimize stress? So what are some of the tasks? Like we obviously can't determine what we're going to feel. We can't determine, you know, like some of the situations that will occur within us, but we can control some of the things in our environment. And what I mean by that is that we can find supports to take care of our pets if they're a source of stress. Do I need to, you know, get people lined up to help me with my older children or child? Do I want to have somebody help me or take care of like household duties or chores that feel like they are impossible, but they are a source of stress for me? Or can I put together a meal train of my closest friends or family that can all drop off a meal every single day for two weeks that would really ease this load and burden of, you know, the postpartum experience. So whatever we can do to minimize our, you know, chores, tasks, like the stressors of postpartum that we, we can't take care of. Those are the things we want to get in place and get in order. In addition to finding the mental health resources connected. So when we do those two things, we are setting ourselves up for success. That's perfect. All right. So what if, this is a good question. What if I am on the end of, or what if I am on the receiving end of rage from a new friend? It feels almost abusive. So what if you have a friend that's recently postpartum and you feel like they're taking out their anger and their rage on you specifically? Yeah. And this is a hard one because we know that people are struggling, but we also are not responsible carrying all that, right? We're not responsible for being the target and taking on all that. And what we can do is point it out mm-hmm. in a very, you know, non-judgmental way, but just saying like, Hey, I've noticed that whatever it is that you've noticed, you've been a bit different. And this is what, and you can just like spell it out. You know, this is what I've noticed when we were out on 
Tuesday when we were together, you kind of raised your voice and it's really not like you. So I was wondering, is everything okay? What's going on with you? Checking in with that person and asking how they're doing and telling them what you're observing in a very non-judgmental way to see if they are receptive or they will engage with you. And if they don't and they just become continuously angry or like like the person that submitted the question said it abusive, mm-hmm. you don't have to stick around. And it's okay to, you know, create space between you and that person for this time while they find the help that they need or the support that they need. And that might take quite a bit of time. And I know it's hard. It's very challenging. I remember feeling like I wasn't myself postpartum and thinking like I I didn't even know that it was happening. And most parents don't, most parents don't know it's happening until it's gotten better. And they think to themselves, that was a really challenging time. Yeah. That was really hard and they might not have the words for it. So keeping in mind, like we don't want to obviously be hurtful and harmful with what we say, but we are allowed to set boundaries. We are allowed to say, I need to take my space for myself. Yep. All right. So I had a few questions about this. And so I find this interesting. So is postpartum rage after you stop breastfeeding common? Is that something you see in your practice? Like, you know, they're telling you, oh, you know, I just weaned my baby and now all of a sudden I'm having all these feelings of rage and, and anger. I had that come up a lot with some, some people saying, oh, I didn't have any issues of this at all during my pregnancy or postpartum until I weaned my baby. This comes up a lot for me too. So yes. So this is why when when mothers are you know pumping or breastfeeding and they begin to wean, they will notice a um, shift in their mood, and it can be anxiety, anger, it can be depression. And if you already experienced these changes in mood early on, and then you felt like you were in the clear, quote unquote, and then you start weaning and you are finding like you're revisiting a lot of these fluctuations in your mood, it is something that does occur, and it typically lasts for a few weeks while your hormones are trying Mm. to adjust. And if it persists, like for you're noticing, okay, I actually weaned a few months ago and I'm noticing this, you want to find a provider and you want to get connected with support because if they can do something to help you or make it better, that would be incredible. Right. But it's something that I experienced and I already knew about when I was in the weaning process and I was like preparing myself, like you're bracing yourself. And sometimes knowing that it's going to happen does feel comforting because you know that other people have experienced it. And, you know, the question is, am I going crazy? What's wrong with me? Like, that's something I get from so many of the parents I meet with. But it does happen, yes. It should resolve, you know, once your your hormones regulate. But if, if you're noticing like, okay, I'm a few months out. This is not changing. I still feel this way. Mm -hmm. Get connected. I feel like... (laughs) Now that's something that's really not talked about is is when you do wean your baby, all of those feelings that come along with that are so unexpected. I mean, mm-hmm. and they're so real, right? And I'm already dreading it with, with mine now because she almost is like self-weaning because, you know, when they're one, they're like, oh my gosh, trying to breastfeed a one-year-old is like my worst nightmare. Mm-hmm. You know, they're trying to do a million other things. They're like, the milk's not coming out fast enough. Like, oh my gosh. But it's just... There are so many feelings and those might even be tied in with, oh, you know, like I'm not ready to to wean yet, but you know, we have to because of X, Y, and Z. And so there's all these emotional feelings about it. And, and, you know, of course with the hormone, hormones leveling out and figuring out where they need to go, it's like this 
crazy influx of just your ups and downs. And I feel like it's almost worse than like after you had give birth, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh my gosh, it's, it's really, really hard. So for those that are listening, like that is a totally normal feeling and you're definitely not alone. If you feel like, wait, I'm weaning my baby. Why do I have all these crazy feelings right now? Yes. It's not even just that hormonal piece. It's like what you said. It's the emotional connection. I was, yeah. didn't, I didn't enjoy breastfeeding. <laughs> to be very honest here, <laughs> the very, the first six months were so challenging. Mm-hmm. And I weaned my son when he was about 15 months. And I remember crying. I was crying. And I'm like, who am I? Like, yeah, I, didn't, I didn't even I, like this. No. <laughs> and I was like, I didn't even anticipate uh, being this person. I didn't like, it was a challenge from the start. It yeah. didn't feel good and all those things. And I think that sometimes when you do you know, you are breastfeeding, it feels like, well, what is going to replace this connection? And I think yeah. that's also like this part of like a societal belief that, you know, breastfeeding is what connects baby to mom. And, mm, yeah. and that's not true because no. we are connected in so many other ways. And my gosh, if my, I always joke, if my, if my son could crawl back in, he would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are very much connected, this kid yeah. and I. Yeah. So, <laughs> Exactly. You don't have to be nursing to be able to connect with your baby. So I know we kind of briefly touched on this, but why is it that postpartum rage literally comes out of nowhere? And so, you know, I've had several instances of this, you know, throughout the last eight years of having babies. And all of a sudden, it really truly is like you had mentioned, like it comes, it's like this big, huge wave that's just so sudden. And then it happens in an instant and then it's gone. And it's like, what? just happened. It literally feels like it's something supernatural that's taking over your body. Like what is, why does it happen? Why does that happen like that? It's really hard to know why it is so abrupt, but I, I do think that much of it is due to the fact that we are kind of stripped away of all of our coping skills mm. postpartum. And like we're running on empty for as long as we can before we can't anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's really what I noticed, like from the parents that I meet with, you know, you're, I've taken your part of your identity away, right? You just sh- shifted identity overnight immediately. And there's just such an abrupt change. So you went from potentially whoever you were before bringing home the baby, you were maybe working, maybe not, maybe you were what you had these hopes for a relationship. Maybe they've changed you're, you were sleeping, now you're not. All of these things shift. The expectations, what you thought it would be like, and now it's here, and you're like, well, this doesn't mm-hmm. match up. You've stopped yeah. doing all of the things that you could do kind of freely to take care of yourself, and you're not able to. And we have just shaken up everything. That transition to parenthood, whether it's your first baby or your sixth baby, it'll shake you up to the core. And now we're like, you are going to be sleep deprived, but we expect you mm-hmm. to be up. 24 seven caring for your baby or babies. Yeah. And it's like, well, you can do that for so long until you can't. Yeah. And I think that's what, that's what brings on. Like that's what the presents that anger and rage. It's It's almost like just coming to a, just a head, you know, it's just everything all at once. Yeah. That makes sense. It's like that gas, you know, your little light comes on that says 20 something miles to empty. I'm the person that like, 
This is emergent. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, 26 miles. I can still make it. You know, that's kind of what. Let's see how far we can push this. <laughs> and that's what it's like. And then all of a sudden you see stars and you're like, oh, oh, oh okay. blinking stars. I don't know if that's good or not. <laughs> and then, you know, explosion. But really, it's like your car stalls. And that's kind of yeah. what it is in, in motherhood. It's like, yeah. okay, I've depleted all of my resources. I have nothing left. Do you know what the statistics are of of those that do struggle with postpartum rage? Like, is that, do we have any? I have any? looked, I have searched, and there isn't anything that I have found. And if somebody does know that they've got better um, access to resources, I have looked at this repeatedly. But it's really hard to tell because it's just kind of an inaccurate number. I mean, how many parents are coming out and, you know, telling their providers that they're right. experiencing this? It's, well, and I said, you said it was like, it can sometimes just be a symptom of something, you know? So like if you have postpartum anxiety, you know, having this rage is also like a symptom of that. And so it's probably just one of those things that's really hard to collectively get, you know, a number as far as how many people are experiencing it. Right. It's not something we expect parents or moms in particular to be like, right? The idea in our mind is that mothers are nurturing, they're gentle, they're loving, it's love at first sight, I'm tender. And those are the things we want to say. We don't want to tell people, I'm angry, I'm irritable, I'm not enjoying this, and I yell a lot, and I throw things. Like, no one wants to disclose that. So it's very challenging. And that's why for providers, if there's a provider that's listening, it's so important for us to ask specific questions mm-hmm. and leave it to chance, you know, ask the specific questions about the anger experience and ask if they're feeling, you know, your patients are feeling this and knowing that questions to ask is so important. That's what I was just going to ask you too. It's going to be my next question for you was, what do you think about the way that we screen women postpartum? Because I know for me, all four babies, what I did was I went in at my six week appointment, which I won't even get started on because I talk about it all the time. (laughs) But we go in six weeks later after giving birth to a baby. And in a lot of cases, these are first time moms. And it's like, you have no idea what you're doing. And you fill out a piece of paper on your own in the waiting room. And then you hand it over and they take mm, five seconds to read it over. And, you know, nine times out of 10, I'm sure they see nothing all, you know, like answering questions appropriately. Mm -hmm. And they just move right along. How are you feeling? How are you physically feeling? And they just skip right over. It's not like they just look at the piece of paper and take everything for granted and then just move on from it. Now, what are your thoughts on that? Like, do you think we need to be doing something differently? Like, what would you implement if you could have like the perfect way to screen women postpartum for any perinatal mood disorders? What would that look like? Oh, the perfect <laughs> way. There would be a mental health provider at every single appointment. Like you would have to see them as well as seeing yes. the OBGYN or the midwife. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody that's at least doing the screening. Do you think that would help a lot with like yes. just everything that we're like we're seeing as far as mental health disorders, especially yeah. postpartum? Yeah. For sure. I mean, we think about how many times we take our kids into the, to see the pediatrician. Yeah. And then we think about our postpartum visit at six weeks. The truth is, is that many of the women that we are seeing don't even start the, the onset of their symptoms might peak at four to six months postpartum. Right. Yeah. So if they're peaking with these symptoms at four to six months postpartum, who's seeing them? <laughs> Nobody. You know, who's, yeah, who's asking <laughs> them about it? 
Nope. And now they're just thinking like, okay, well, no one else has talked to me about this. So maybe I'm just not cut out for the job. You know, they're not thinking like, right. oh no, this is an experience that I could get support with and it can get better. So my ideal would be that we'd be checking in with, with moms as often as we're checking in with our babies mm. and we're going to see them and there, maybe there is a provider that calls you. I actually, something kind of like an aside that's related is I struggled with infertility before having my son and mm-hmm. my insurance, thankfully, I thought this was a great resource. I mean, as a psychologist, this was for a short period on the previous insurance plan I was on. They had a social worker that her job was to contact me and to follow up with me. And she would check in with me like every few weeks. And she wanted to see how it was doing, wanted to check in and she would do like an assessment and she'd ask me all these questions. And I thought, this is so helpful. This is so helpful. I have no one else to talk to about this. She was just checking in with me, you know, virtually or telephonic, however it was. And I thought like, well, that would be so great, especially since new parents, you know, with little babies might not be able to get out and go to the doctor and see all these people, but to have somebody that's following up and checking and calling them and going over the specific questions, you know, going over the symptoms of anxiety or depression or anger or whatever the case may be and saying like, Hey, is this coming up for you? Cause if it is, you know, you're not the only one and there is support out there. Can you imagine if we were to implement that? I mean, something so simple, like you said, it doesn't need to be, it doesn't need to be a visit to anywhere. It can just Mm -hmm. be a phone call. And just to even have somebody tell you on the other side of the phone, Hey, if you're having any of these feelings, you're not alone. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm here. If you want to talk about these things, we have resources for you. And how many people that would save, you know, and just give them so much comfort in knowing that, you know, yeah, it's so frustrating to think about. It is. It it really is. You know, I didn't even know there was such thing as, you know, a perinatal mood disorder, like psychology that would even specialize in something like that. I didn't even, I didn't know that until I, I think maybe after my third, like I didn't, and I'm in the medical field, mind you. But it's like one. Of, it's almost like a pelvic floor physical therapist. I didn't know those existed, but everybody should know that they exist. It's just I don't even know why we don't get even just a handout resource like from your your practice where you had your baby saying, "Hey, if you're having any of these issues, these are pelvic floor physical therapists in the area. If you're having any issues with feelings of depression, anger, anxiety, here's some perinatal uh, mood disorder." psychiatrists, mental health therapists that all specialize in this. You know what I mean? Just having Mm -hmm. a piece of paper that says like, here's a support system for you, depending on what you might need, like throughout the next six months to a year, because you're right. I mean, there's no follow-up after the six weeks. No, (laughs) there's nothing. It's like just giving you like a checklist most of the time. So if you don't even feel comfortable documenting it no one's going to ask, and to be quite honest, as a psychologist who has seen these checklists, some of them don't even cover, they don't even address the anchor piece. They don't address, oh, no. you know, no. the, the questions that we need to be asking are not on those. So if we're no. relying just heavily on a questionnaire, we're in trouble. Right. We, we really are in trouble. And I mean, like you've, like you said throughout this episode, I mean, it, they don't necessarily manifest themselves within six weeks. <laughs> These people, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, oh, okay. So we're saying that all perinatal mood disorders will manifest themselves within that first six weeks. Like, no, that's not true. Mm-hmm. And then of course, then we're just like letting these women go. And it's so sad to me that we don't have the resources. So I just, I hope everybody listens to this episode <laughs> so that they at least have the resources that you talked about and just some basic knowledge of, you know, like what to look out for and everything. I agree. I'm right there with you. 
So, all right, I have two uh, questions I ask all my interviewees. So the first question is, this doesn't have to do anything with what we talked about today. It can be about anything. So if you could give one piece of advice to a mom, what would it be? You know, this piece of advice is great that you asked me this question because this is a question that comes up a lot. And my response is kind of like off. So I think most people don't know where I'm coming from. But Mm -hmm. I always say that you're allowed to change your mind. And the reason why I say that is because I remember being in my early days postpartum and having this really rigid thinking of what I needed to be or and how I should be. And that was based on like pregnant me Mm -hmm. or, you know, the me that didn't have a baby and didn't know. So I was like holding on to these like rigid expectations, these rigid ideas of what I needed to be. And I wish someone would have told you, told me you can change your mind, you know, yeah. you don't have to do that. It's okay. Yeah. Cause I would have probably hugged them and cried Yeah, knowing that I I had that permission. I think that's great. Yeah. I mean, there were, I mean, I can't even remember with my first, I made all of these like decisions like, okay, uh, my baby every night, I'm going to do a bath and I'm going to do a baby massage. And this damn baby massage gave me so much stress. <laughs> my baby freaking hated it. Okay. She was, she was colicky, like colicky, like yours. It was my mm-hmm. worst nightmare. Three months of crying straight. We bounced her from 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. every night. Yep. It was my worst freaking <laughs> yeah. nightmare. No. Honestly, I don't even know how I had kids after that, but all my <laughs> other kids were fine. I swear she was feeding off of my energy, to be honest with you, because my energy level was, of course, like through the roof, severe mm-hmm. anxiety. I had like breastfeeding jaundice, like, my baby had breastfeeding jaundice, which is basically like your breast milk it didn't come in quite quick enough. And then, you know, they weren't able to, anyways, it's just, it's this long whole thing that made me feel like a terrible mom, of course, which wasn't my fault at all, right. but then led to all these other things. And then she cried and cried and cried. And I don't even know where I'm going with this, but I thought this baby massage thing in the bath was like really going to be the, the, the changer for her. Yeah. And so I felt like, tied, like married to this idea of giving her the bath and giving her this baby massage. She hated it. I hated it. I was like, just let it go. Lynn's just let it go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, then I was like, no, this is going to help. But yeah, I love that. I love that piece of advice. Okay. So the second question is, if you could make one meal for your whole family that you know, everybody would eat, that's relatively quick and easy. What would it be? Oh, this is who I know. I'm sorry. It's a really tough one. Everybody, you must not know my family. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, listen, some people's answers were McDonald's. Some have been pizza. It doesn't need to be anything, you know, like literally whatever. You know, this is, it's like a Chipotle bowl kind of thing. That's always a big hit. So I I make something like that at home if I'm feeling like I want to. Otherwise, we go to Chipotle. (laughs) I'm going to go with that. No one has ever complained. Yeah, no, I mean, those are phenomenal. And you're right. I mean, all you can, you could just get a package of like frozen rice, you know, like prepackaged frozen mm-hmm. rice, and then pick up a rotisserie chicken at the store and then throw in a bunch of grilled veggies, whatever you have, right? I mean, like, yeah. black yeah, beans easy. is a big hit too. So, yeah, can- yeah, there you go. <laughs> I feel like you always have those in your pantry, right? <laughs> Some black yeah. beans. Like, what's for dinner tonight? Well, just black beans, honey. That's all. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to chat with us. I think this is going to be really helpful for everybody. And we really appreciate you, Dr. Reem. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. 
To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.